Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. Entree Architect membership has monthly training, unlimited access to business resources, a video library, and a private member forum with hundreds of entrepreneur architects just like you. Everything you need to build a better business is available now at Entree Architect. Subscribe today at entrearchitect.com slash join. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise, all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. This is episode 278. And recently, I moderated a live webinar session for a couple of friends of mine as they revealed their findings and answered questions about their in-depth study on public interest design firms. They answered dozens of questions about the model, including how the model works and why sometimes it doesn't. This week at Entree Architect Podcast, how to start a public interest design firm with Maya Sharfi and Gilad Marone of Proactive Practices. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, Gusto, Easy Online Payroll, Benefits, and HR built for the modern small business. RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM, specifications, and so much more. And FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software that makes running your small firm easy, fast, and secure, spend less time on accounting, and more time doing the work you love. All right. Hi, folks. Thank you for being here. We're excited that you're here. We're excited to have this last 
of our three-part webinar series, where it is not just us sharing our perspective, but us getting to be in dialogue with you. And I want to hand things over to actually somewhat of a longtime friend of ours, Mark LePage, who runs Entra Architect, also runs a podcast. It was one of the first podcasts we are on. Um, Mark really knows what it is to be an architect. His whole business is designed around helping small firm architects move forward and really hit success and align their businesses with the lives and um, impact that they want to make. And so we are really excited that he agreed to come on and to be our moderator for our, our session today. So I'll hand it over to you, Mark. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you both for inviting me on because I love doing this. I love what you what you're both doing. Uh, I love proactive practices and what what the entire platform stands for. Um, and so uh, when you invited me on to, to do this, I was really excited. So thank you for for inviting me on here. Um, what I would and this the idea of this session, um, Maya, you did the first session, Gilad, you did the second session. Uh, I encourage anyone who's on the call who has not watched those sessions to go back and watch them because they're very, very interesting. And if you're interested in, um, in, in public interest design, it gives you a very good overview of the entire concept and what they've learned and how it works and why, and why, why it doesn't work when it doesn't work. So it's, it's very, very interesting uh, to go back there. This call is intended to sort of be a call where it's going to be focused on you. And so, uh, we're hoping that you have a lot of questions that maybe you watch those, those webinars and you're like, well, I want to do that. I want to be part of that. Uh, but I don't know how. So, um, I'd love for you to start posting questions in the chat box. Uh, we're welcoming you and encouraging you to come online and, and speak. You know, you can turn on your cameras, you can turn on your audio. If you can't do that for any reason, just post in the chat box and we'll, we'll, we'll open up the audio and the video for you. Um, but definitely, Post some questions. I have a bunch of questions too, because I'm interested too. And I have a bunch of questions that I want to ask. Um, but let's, let's, uh, I want to, we'll, we'll kick, kick things off with uh, what, uh, sort of a general question to both of you, Maya and Gilan. Um, if I'm somebody who watched those videos and I'm inspired and this is something that's in me and I found those videos and I found you because I'm interested in it and I, and I want to do this, I want to, I want to build a public interest design firm. How do I get started? And I, and, I, and I want you to sort of look at this from three different perspectives, because there could be three different ways that, that, that we're, we're pursuing this. Maybe one is a business owner that I've already started a firm, and it's not a public interest design firm, but I want it to be. So that's sort of one question. Then maybe I'm a freelancer or an independent uh, contractor or a student coming out of architecture school. How do I start it from scratch? And then maybe the third piece is I'm in a firm, I'm working for somebody else, I don't really want to get out of that firm. I like being an employee. I don't want to start my own firm. But how do I influence that firm to do more of this work? So how do I get started? Yeah, I, I, love, I love the way you frame that because it's these different starting points and it is different based on where you're getting started. So I'll, I'll share, maybe I'll share my, I have a specific take on um, business owner and firm. Um, and then maybe Gilad, if you're excited to talk about freelancer, and anything else, then we end. So I think, 
if you're a business owner, it's an incredible opportunity to be able to align your practice with your values. And I think a lot of people, especially if you if you left someone else's firm, you may end up replicating the dynamics of the firm that you left because you're not thinking about, well, who do I want to serve and how do I want to serve them and what are the ways in which I do want to serve them? So what I would suggest is that you find one either initiative or project to test out doing public interest work. It might be finding um, finding an issue in your community that you care about and trying to understand what would what opportunities are there in order for design to have an impact. And then I would start connecting with potential end users, um, potential funders, and I would try to scope out of it a small test project to get started on or a small initiative to get started on. So an initiative can, you know, maybe it's not a traditional project, but it might be a way that you go about your work or, you know, every, um, a certain commitment that your firm is making. So there's a, there's a, um, it's not quite public interest, but there's a firm that I just found out about that just made a commitment to going carbon neutral. And so you can make an impact, not just by the projects that you do, but how you do the work. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, you are your portfolio, you are what you achieve. And so get that first, um, that first kind of point of, of, of public interest uh, work done. And then you can start to build a body of work around it and formalize more policies around it. Um, if you are in a practice, um, what I have seen be successful is is there are oftentimes again it's getting started with one initiative one project one it's a lot easier to test something as a pilot or a test project and then to build policy or structure around it what we've seen be one of the most common pathways to achieving public interest design as a commitment in a firm is to have support from different levels of the organization so years ago when when canon design was getting involved in in public interest design, it was a group of emerging architects and then a couple key people in leadership who joined together and became each other's allies to push this forward. And I think that there's something about having alliances, um, you know, people at the bottom saying, we want to do this, we want to do the work, we are in the middle, um, you know, showing interest and proof that this is something that's worth investing in. And then people who are in other key areas of the of the organization who can kind of pull other influence levers. And so that alliance building skill, I think is particularly important if you're trying to do this as an employee in a much larger firm. Very good. Good. How about how about if I'm a, a freelancer or student or or maybe even somebody who is is more seasoned have got has gone through the whole, you know, own my own firm work for other people. But now I'm at a point where I just want to I want to do what I want to do. And, but I'm by myself solo and I want to, I want to start doing this. What, how do you, how do you get started if you're sort of solo? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And it's something that is uh, not like level of experience, you know, specific. I think people, you know, at all levels of experience grapple with these same questions. So that's just to say, if, if you're early on in your career and you're struggling to figure out the answers to these, know that you're not alone. Um, I, I think that, some of the advice I would give to students or, or folks just trying to find their their path in this space is ironically actually the same advice I might give to someone that you just described, Mark, someone much more advanced in their career, um, which is to think about kind of what is the, the thing that is most um, pressing to you? What are you most passionate about? Um, and there's kind of four areas or four types that, uh, that I've seen come up fairly frequently, so I think they can be useful. Um, this idea of like an impact type, you know, something you specifically want to create impact on. 
Um, you know, whether that's environmental impact, whether that's economic impact, whether that's political impact, there's, there's a range of different types of impacts that you might be interested in pursuing, but knowing what it is specifically that you're ultimately trying to work towards could be really helpful for kind of reverse engineering how you get there. Um, another that's, that's uh, very common is location or geography, people who are really passionate about helping their community, whether that's a, a small neighborhood or a city or an entire region or even a whole country, whatever it is, uh, really honing in on what the specific location and geography of your work will be could also help you kind of create some con constructive or creative constraints that, that lead you to finding your path. Um, another one is a population or a group of people knowing that there's a certain type of community or certain group of people you really want to work with. You know, for example, I have a friend who um, is Syrian and really cares about working with Syrian refugees. And she really doesn't care in what context or what work she's doing. It's about the population that she wants to be working with. Um, so that, that's another one that could be helpful. And then finally, uh, an, an issue area, um, a specific type of work um, or, or type of um, kind of issue in the world that you want to be addressing. So um, for example, I'm, I feel pretty passionate about addressing the issue of homelessness and um, helping those who are experiencing homelessness. And that sort of focus on an issue can be really helpful. So I think whether you're a student just starting out or whether you're someone very advanced in your career, um, I think trying to hone in on something, whether it's a, a type of impact, a location, a group of people or an issue um, or, or something else, those are just four, four examples. I think those can be really helpful in orienting you and trying to figure out what you're doing. And, I, I realize that's not really an answer. That's just saying pick something and then figure it out from there. Um, but I think that can actually be a really important first step. So you're grounded in something. So you have a sort of base to work off of. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you both had a very similar response to that is to start small, pick something that you can make an impact on because maybe something that you really want to ultimately make a big, big impact on maybe too big to start. And if you don't start small, you'll never get to the big thing that you want to get to. And so by picking something that you know that you can make an impact on and go do that, that will allow you to sort of be the stepping stone to get to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing, and then grow into the, the thing that you wanted it to be. Definitely. And, and I would just add one more thing to that, especially to your question of, of freelancers. That's, that's kind of how I would describe myself. Um, something that I've found that's really helpful for kind of getting your foot in the door is not doing the work actually it's going out and volunteering um, with an organization you care about or just going to local community meetings or doing something that's going to get you engaged in actual real communities and groups of people who are already organizing and doing work that is in the public interest or is serving a community or is advancing uh, an issue and just being a part of that and trying to become more familiar with it understand the issues understand the dynamics and the nuances under get built over time start to find ways where your technical skills could be of use could be serving that 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 group or that organization or or that group of people yeah i mark i just want to weigh in though that i think both of us are are the way we would get started is we would start with something small, get proof of concept, move on to the next level. But there are some people who are go big or go home folks, right? So, um, you know, whether or not the plus pool, which we talked about in one of our webinars is your example of public interest design, right? You know, whether that's your impact example, there are some people who just 
put out a big idea, build an alliance around it. And, um, you know, Daniel Burnham, who was a planner in Chicago, I grew up in Chicago, always said, um, make no small plans because they, they don't have the power to stir man's heart or yeah, I think I'm misquoting him somewhat, but, um, but I think that there is a pathway for some people, which is like put out a big idea and then figure out how to make it happen, build the alliance around it, see who wants to get inside yeah. that. Tent. Yeah. I love that example of the plus pool and, and how they put that big, big idea out there and then it was out there and then people can come and say, Hey, we can help you make that happen because you put that big idea out there. Yeah. Really, really good. Tina has a question about how do you make this all work financially? You know, that's the, Tina, you are right there with me. I, that's, I am, uh, every year I'm on the jury of the architecture business plan competition with Charette Venture Group. And every year we, we had multiple submissions from public interest design firms or firms that sort of ha- wanna have that social side of it. Um, and very often they sort of push that profit part to the side. You know, that they, they promote the, the, the triple bottom line of, of profit, people, and planet. Um, but then they start talking about the people and the, and the planet and they sort of push the, the money to the side and, and that becomes this necessary evil. But in reality, in order for it to really work, and you've even showed, shown this in many of your case studies, that you need to have some sort of strategy, some sort of business plan for this to actually work. So uh, Tina's question is, how, how do you translate that into money-making business? That's the crux of the challenge, small test projects um, that are pro bono are pretty accessible. It's the business side of it that's the stumbling block for all of us. So do you have a question on, or an answer to that question on, you know, how do you keep that balance? And are there specific business models that work, uh, work better than others? Yeah, I think um, I, I've got a, a few quick things and I think Maya will have even more insight to share since this is a lot of what she focuses on now. Um, I think one thing on the outset to keep in mind is that public interest design is not the same business model as traditional for-profit architecture or, you know, big D design firms. Um, you're doing different types of work. It's going to require different types of funding. It's going to oftentimes require different internal organizational structures to enable that work to move forward in the right way. So the, the entire model is somewhat, it's very similar and can be kind of changed and translated but I think it's important to remember that we can't simply think that a traditional for-profit architecture design firm that's been set up to do for-profit client-driven work is going to immediately just be able to take on public interest projects and not change anything about how they operate. Um, so I, I think some of those things that you could change to make this more of a sort of viable business model, um, three quick things that come to mind. One is bidding on public sector contracts. Um, we know that by nature, working for the public sector is working in the public interest because you're using tax dollars. Um, now, there's, there's a lot of conversation and debate there about how that happens and what it actually means. But if you're working for the public sector, addressing the public's interest should be one of the top priorities of the work that you're doing. And so, th- therefore, the client being a department or an agency within city government, that project's inherently going to be oriented differently than a for-profit client. Um, Another one that I think is important is going after supplemental funding. Um, You might not be able to get all the money you need to do this type of project, but you can be applying for grants or building relationships with philanthropers um, or other means of getting donations, crowdsourcing. I mean, there's a a host of ways to to fundraise and build 
um, financial backing for a project, but thinking about the fact that you might need to do stuff outside of the design project in order to fund it. Um, and then the third one that comes to mind is really convincing your clients, being a sort of evangelical, so to speak, for the value of investing in this type of work that can be better PR for that client, making them look good, that could um, that could provide new insights about how they might be doing work in the future. There's, there's a number of other ways to think about that, uh, but really selling your clients on increasing the budget for the project because this is important and it's going to be valuable for you for X, Y, and Z reason. Maya, do you? Yeah, yeah. so I think, um, I think about it as a design problem, right? I think about it as, like I was, I was trained as a landscape architect, um, very much that kind of site analysis mentality is, is how I approach everything, probably, you know, even like a fight with my partner. I'm like, let's diagram it out, right? But, <laughs> but you know, I think when you start to think about it as a system, you start to think, okay, what is the social issue problem need? And are there funding streams that are already going to solve this? Who is, who is paying for this to be solved? What kind of player are they? How do they pay for it, right? How do you understand it structurally? So um, one of the um, practices that, that I have seen in the, we, you know, we didn't know about them when we were doing our work, but I really admire them. They were written up and curbed a couple years ago. Um, is this group, this planning and design group called Lamas that is doing facade renovation, but it's facade renovation that also has a um, kind of business coaching component for small and I think usually immigrant run businesses on um, uh, some key throughways and some key districts in Los Angeles. And so their partners are, is the economic development department. Um, and so they've got budgets, they have things that they're investing in and it, you know, whether or not they have these facade renovation, you know, line items, not sure if they had that before Lamas got involved, but really trying to understand who's paying for what, what line item is it, is it coming out of and, and how will, you know, how can we position what we're going to do as an alternative, as a, as a smarter, not harder alternative, a better use of resources. And that might mean you're not just the designer working on this. You're actually building a coalition or a collaborative where your, your skill set is a component of it, right? It might be about a partnership approach. So, um, you know, I, I think that's the, the way that I try to think about it. And what's great about that is if you start to zero in on it, it means that you don't have to be everything to everyone, right? You don't have to make the economic development department love you and know, like, and trust you, right? We know that in order to get hired, whether you're public interest or for profit, at the end of the day, one of my business coaches says people hire people, right? At the end of the day, it's about that know, like, and trust between key decision makers at each entity that decide to engage in this, in this you know, venture together, right? Even if you're getting paid to do your work, it's a shared enterprise. If anyone has ever hired a another vendor or a subcontractor, you know that there's an element of trust involved. So you don't have to make everyone know, like, and trust you. You can figure out who are the almost typological partners that hire, that spend money on the things that the the, the things that go to fund the problems that you're trying to solve. And how do you position your work as an alternative and then understand how to speak to them and how to speak to the key influencers that, that are around them. Um, it really is, I, I think it's almost kind of like a sales training question, right? You know, people in for-profit world who are bu building businesses do this all the time. And it's applying this to the frame of the social problem that you're trying to address. Um, I'll also say that there's, 
an alternative business model, which says we don't tap into the existing funding streams. We do higher profit work and we use that to subsidize the other work that we want to do. I think I mentioned this in an earlier webinar, but I am a huge fan of not doing pro bono, but doing low bono. I think it, I think that you get better outcomes when there's at least some financial stake in the game on the beneficiaries part, or at least funders who are involved with them. And on your part, right, it becomes more of that shared enterprise. Um, I, 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 one of the things I'm thinking through in my, in my coaching work is sometimes companies will pay to have women coached. And I've been thinking about, do I actually need to make sure that each woman has financial stake also in the coaching engagement to make sure that, you know, she's really owning the value of that work. So I think that's kind of a a basic principle that I've seen be true over and over and over again. And then the last piece, which is, it's hard, it's really hard, um, and different firms address it in different ways, but your short term and your long term of your business are not always the same thing, right? Before you get that credibility, that proof of concept, you may need to put more sweat equity into it, right? That's what we saw with Mass Design Group. Um, with some of the women who I coach, they may have a long game of what they're, how they're trying to position themselves. And I think the same thing is, is true for a business. You might have a long game of how you're trying to position yourself and you may need a short-term either income strategy or a short-term, it, it, growing a business is not the same as maintaining a business. And I think sometimes we try to go from here, zero to 60 immediately. and you know, we actually need different strategies to move through the different phases that we're in. Vanessa has a question about funding. So let's, let's keep, keep that, that conversation going. She asks, um, as a firm or an individual not set up as a 501c3, uh, are there recommendations for funding the work if, group, if the group does not have funds for quote unquote design services or uh, uh, philanthropic state agencies, grants, et cetera, are there specifics Funding, um, uh, and then I also want to have a follow-up question about that as well. So let's let's um, address that and specific funding sources that they should be looking at. So one is there's always fiscal sponsorship, right? So fiscal sponsorship is where an organization, um, a, a nonprofit organization, can actually become the pass-through entity for grant funding. So so that's a possibility. So something to think through. Um, I think the other thing on this kind of pro bono, low bono front um, is Catherine Darnstadt of Latent Design had an approach where she, she when, her, when she wasn't able to get as much funding from her partners, she would ask them for key benefits that would benefit her firm and she would actually write them into the contract. So for example, um, she really wanted to give a presentation on her work and her design work to their board members. And so that might be something that you think about is, what else does your entity need that maybe is non-financial, but that you are potentially spending money on doing or spending time on achieving, right? You know, getting FaceTime in front of other key clients. And are there ways that you can translate those things into things that your, your partner can provide for you? And I want to pick up on one of the last words you just used, um, translating. Um, I think that's another really uh, important thing to keep in mind, thinking about where the money comes from especially for firms or foundations or um, state agencies, as, as you said, Vanessa, um, that might not have specific money allocated. I think translating your work into the language of the funder or the client can be a really useful tool. Um, and we saw this a couple of times actually in some of the case studies. So for example, Util, um, which is a firm based in Boston, 
spoke about how when they first started working with um, city government, they talked a lot about trying to create social impact in the city and trying to really improve certain aspects. And um, the, the department said they were talking to were kind of like, you know, social impact, like, sorry, that's, that's not what we're trying to do right here. Um, and the more they talked about it and the more they got to know these organizations and department heads, they realized what they really care about is economic development. When we say social impact, we really are also talking about economic development. It's just that that's the language they use. They speak about all these types of impacts as forms of economic development. And so I think that's, that's a good example of understanding how translating or code switching, just using different language to describe what you're doing can really um, help the client or the funder understand how what you're doing actually helps them accomplish the goals they're already working towards. And I'll just share one other quick example, um, again, from one of the case studies from Mass Design Group. They spoke about how when they were fundraising for some of the hospitals they were building um, in countries around Africa, um, they, they said at first foundations and philanthropists weren't interested in just funding hospitals. They're like, there's lots of organizations that do that. We're not interested in hospitals. We're trying to make big picture impact on things. And so then they started talking about these projects, not as hospitals, but as um, opportunities to improve access to healthcare, to improve maternal health, to provide jobs and economic development for rural villages. And suddenly all these foundations were like, oh, wow, yeah, we want to support those things. And yeah. oh, if, if building a hospital is the way you're going to do that, great, we'll give you money for it. So I think that idea of code switching and translating to really make sure you're speaking the language of the client or the funder could be a powerful approach. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Um, when, when, when Vanessa's question came up, the first thing that popped into my mind was, was Inkscape and how they sort of build, they have, they in, they have Inkscape, Publico, which is one of your case studies, um, for anybody who, who's listening who doesn't realize that. It's Inkscape Publico, which is um, their nonprofit, and then Inkscape Studio, that then the nonprofit is feeding the for-profit company. So they do the work for, as the nonprofit, and then they have services that they, that they provide as, um, as for-profit. And when I, when I saw that presentation on Maya's webinar, my thought was, well, that's reversed. That's backwards. What my thought, whenever those, those businesses come up on, on the business plan competition, I always think, well, why not build the profitable, you know, thriving business first and then have the entire intent of that thriving business feeding the nonprofit side of what you do. So whether, whether you start with the business first that you build a thriving, profitable business that then you take those profits and you feed them right into your nonprofit um, or you partner with somebody Maybe you don't want to build a profitable business. So you partner with somebody who does love that side of it. You run the, the, um, the, the nonprofit side of it. And that becomes your funding source that this profitable thriving business now gives you the, the, the funds to go do the nonprofit things you want to do. And maybe it's even the nonprofit side is actually applying for grants from the profit side. And you, you, you know, you provide grants to the nonprofit side. What are your thoughts on that sort of reversing that model and building the profitable business first that then feeds the nonprofit side? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I, I think that some people would say, um, I think a little bit more from the sort of say community organizing or advocacy space, like don't jump into doing this sort of social impact work, like get good at your technical skills. Like, do what you're really good at doing and hone the skills. And after you've been doing that for a while, 
figure out how you can apply those, figure out how those can be put in the service of communities or in the public at large. So I think there is a lot of value um, uh, to this idea of really focusing on your business first, making sure it's profitable, making sure you know how to run an entire project, manage all the funds for a project, make sure you know how to accomplish stuff and complete a project on time, on budget, maybe even under budget, and make sure you have the staff to do that work and make sure you really understand the complexities of the type of work you're doing, and then figure out how you can start applying those skills to, to socially relevant projects. I think that there's just different pathways there and they have trade-offs, right? You know, so I think sometimes, I think that there's this idea that you should do well and then do good. Um, there's also, of course, a trade-off mentality that tells us you can either do well or do good, right? You know, by do well, I mean make money, do good. And I just think that there's different ways to move forward, right? If you can find a a niche, right? A thing that there are funding streams for, whether they're coming from the beneficiaries, the end users, or from funders, and you have the credibility to position your services in those ways, and you can, you know, turn the profit that you that is right for your business to turn that keeps it sustainable in the long term. I mean, I think that's great too, right? I think it's different for. I think there's different pathways for different people. I will say that in in the coaching work I do, which again is on the individual basis. I have people think about the long-term North Star where they're ultimately trying to go, which is, you know, it's hard for people sometimes to say like, well, I don't know where I want to go because all I know is what's five feet in front of me. But I have people try to find a North Star. And then when you when you know where you might want to be in the future, it's easier to then back up and say, okay, what do I need to get there? And do I have to have it all at once? Maybe I don't, right? Maybe if I want to be a, um, a real estate, a mission-driven real estate developer, well, there's a lot of skills I need to get and exposure and network I need to build in order to get there. So I might take a couple years working in a real estate firm because that's the fastest way to get that exposure, that language, that skill set, et cetera. And I know that it's actually part of a much longer game. Um, so my advice is to kind of, think through where you ultimately want to go. And then there's always multiple pathways to get there and to, you know, do some trade, do some, you know, do I want to do it this way? Do I want to do that? Is, is, is it worth giving this up for the short term in order to get that? And to think about it in, in that row. And to also know, by the way, that that North Star is probably going to change because when you take actions towards <clears throat> towards a more ambitious and ambitious can, either, can even mean socially ambitious future, then and this is going to sound very woo woo, but um, but you know sometimes the world comes out to meet you and presents you with opportunities or or um, possibilities that you wouldn't have seen in the first place because you've raised your hand and you've said yes I'm interested in this um, and then all of a sudden things start to look different to you you start to see more opportunities and people know what you're interested in what you're doing and they start to send things your way. And just for the record, that's not woo woo. That's the world. That's the, yeah. way, that's the way the world works. You get what you give. If you yeah. keep giving and giving and giving, people will give right back to you. Yeah, you've got to show up. <laughs> yep, exactly. We will be right back to our conversation after this quick break to say thank you to our platform sponsors here at Entree Architect, Gusto, Arcat, and FreshBooks. If you own a business or know someone who does, you probably know that us small firm business owners, we wear a lot of hats. And some of those hats are totally great, but some, like filing taxes and running payroll, not so great. 
that's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, and HR actually easy for small businesses. Fast, simple payroll processing benefits and simple management tools all in one place. Gusto automatically pays and files your federal, state, and local taxes so you don't have to worry about it. Plus, they make it easy to add on health benefits and even 401ks for your team. Those old school clunky payroll providers just weren't built for the way modern small businesses work. But Gusto is. So let Gusto wear one of your many hats. You have better things to do. Listeners to the Entree Architect podcast get three months free when they run their first payroll. Try a demo and see for yourself at entrearchitect.com slash gusto. That's entrearchitect.com slash G-U-S-T-O. It's what every professional in architecture dreads. Editing down a manufacturer's specifications. Did that just make your skin crawl? Did that just make the hair on the back of your neck stand up? You're staring down a 54-page specification and you just need one product. Just one product and all of its attributes. That's all you need. There is a better way. And it's not throwing the entire specification into the project documents. That's a waste of time. That's a waste of money. It's RCAT.com's Spec Wizard. Spec Wizard is a unique tool that allows you to specify a product in minutes, not hours, by turning a specification into a simple to use website. Just select the products and options you want to specify and generate a three part CSI specification in multiple formats. And best of all, it's free. And it requires no registration. You don't even need to send them your email address. It's all free, just like everything at RCAT. So go to entrearchitect.com slash RCAT, entrearchitect.com slash A-R-C-A-T, and try the better way of specifying products. RCAT's Spec Wizard. Do you remember when you started your small firm? It was no small feat. It took lots of late nights, early mornings, and maybe even the occasional all-nighter. Bottom line, you've been busy, insanely busy, ever since. So why not make things a little bit easier? Well, our friends at FreshBooks have the solution. FreshBooks invoicing and accounting software is designed specifically for small business owners. It's simple, intuitive, and it keeps you way more organized than the dusty shoebox filled with crumpled receipts. Create and send professional-looking invoices in 30 seconds and then get them paid two times faster with automated online payments. File expenses even quicker and keep them perfectly organized for tax time. And the best part? FreshBooks grows alongside your business, so you'll always have the tools that you need when you need them without ever having to learn the ins and outs of accounting. Join the 24 million people who've used FreshBooks. Try it for free for 30 days. That's free for 30 days. No catch, no credit card. Free. 30 days. Visit entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks. That's entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks. And enter Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section to get started. Gusto, RCAT, and FreshBooks. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. And, and I invite, Vanessa's posted some of her, her progress in the chat box. Vanessa, if you want to come on and share it with the rest of us, I would love for you to do that. Put your camera on and your mic and just talk about what you're doing. 
and and have Maya and, and Galad sort of uh, you know give you some feedback on what you're doing or just promote what you're doing so we can we can learn. You have your audio on? Oh, hold on, you're you're muted. Hi. Hi. So I I'm very active with AI New York and I know a lot about licensure in New York State and I recently started my own business and it's been a little bit of a nightmare. Um, navigating the New York State Regulatory Board, and I know Robert Lopez very well. Um, my initial idea was to have an architecture firm and potentially have a nonprofit arm or related um, under a specific brand. Can't do that. <laughs> um, and I had a conversation with Rob. Um, it's interesting in New York State, it's pretty specific, the legislation related to what you're allowed to do for an architecture firm and it's provide architectural services. Mm -hmm. The definition of that is questionable. Um, there's uh, New York is uh, its own landscape. So I'm trying to figure out um, how to do it at least through my business entity that, I, that took me about a year to create um, for now and then see if I need um, another. I think the, I really appreciate the concept of tra translating um, with the different agencies and, and cause I, I think that there's definitely fun, there's definitely funding available. It's easier to get through nonprofits than it is to get through a for-profit architecture firm. Um, and so I'm also in the process of doing like a minority owned business and women owned business. Um, so it'll get me in the pipeline, but a lot of the projects that I really want to do, they don't have, there's no funds available to do them. Do you guys have any, any thoughts or advice? Yeah, I think the first thing that comes to mind is just what you said about the fact that they're more likely to hire or provide contracts for nonprofits. Um, I, I think partnerships can be really powerful. Um, so finding the nonprofits that are doing work that's related to the types of services you want to provide or working on issue areas or with people who you would really like to be providing services for or using your work to address those issues and building relationships with those nonprofits and then going after stuff together um, to, to something we spoke about earlier about the idea of expanding the scope of services um, when you're doing this type of work. I've heard a number of firms talk about the fact that they work directly with nonprofits and they'll actually do a lot of the grant writing themselves because the nonprofit's too busy, they can't invest in this, but the designer's like, hey, I have this idea about how I could help advance this issue that you're already working on. And they're like, great, we'll sign off on it. You do the grant writing. And if we get the project, you'll be the person we hire to, to work on that. So I think thinking about how to partner with others who are already in that system or already have those qualifications or legal structures that are most kind of like apt to work in that. Yeah. So I, I have to talk to my lawyer, but when I talked to Robert Lope, uh, to the state board, they said that if I do grant writing, I shouldn't do it under my architecture firm. I should do it under myself as a consultant and it has to do with liability insurance and, and things that I'm qualified to do versus not qualified to do as a registered architect. So I'm trying to figure that out. Um, but I just want to throw that out there for other people who are, who are thinking about it. Just be careful what you're doing under which umbrella. Yeah, that's good. Good point. Um, Tina, Tina uh, made a suggestion as well. And I think it ties right into this is, is um, Tina thinks that it would be helpful for you to be able to connect the people who are interested in what you're doing with one another. So is there a place that they can do that? Is there a Facebook group or a Slack group or something uh, where, 
people who are following proactive practices can connect and, and help one another? Yeah. Well, so this came up in our last webinar. There's no Facebook group. There's no, you know, forum. Um, so there's, there's, there's one very immediate opportunity which we can offer, which is if you are interested in being, having your info shared with other people who are interested in this, um, you can email um, hello at proactivepractices.org and we will we'll collect some emails and then we'll try to send out a big email just so that you have each other's contact info. Um, you know, let's do it old school style. Uh, the other other venue that we love and, you know, we've talked about it over and over is the Association for Community Design has a annual conference. It has membership network organization, Gilad. Um, either was on the board or is currently on the board of it. And it's just, it's the place to go. There aren't that many institutions in the public interest design world. And, you know, so, and what's, what's, you know, it's kind of unfortunate because there's a lot of people who are interested in doing this work, but I would say that's a great place to get connected to other architects and built environment designers. Um, there's also the Open Architecture Network, which has all kinds of things that they do. Um, and then finally, I haven't been involved with it for a number of years, but I do know that as of a couple of years ago, IDEO.org was running a online forum where they would actually put out challenge projects and you could connect up with teams and it was a, it was kind of a, you know, another watering hole online for getting connected and doing this kind of work. So those are some places that, that you can go and we are happy to be the, the matchmakers. Um, well, what I'll say is that, you know, maybe you connect with a bunch of people here, or maybe you just find one person who is an accountability partner, someone who's also trying to push forward this kind of work. Um, I have a, I have a, I have a business wing woman. She runs a company out in Portland. We met online about four years ago. She was my first, you know, online friend, which four years ago seemed very sketchy. Um, but we have been having pretty much weekly accountability calls. She runs a totally different business than I do for about four years. We now do an annual business retreat. Um, you know, I've written marketing copy for her. She's made spreadsheets for me. I mean, we're like, we're like all up in each other's business and I really, like, I call her my business wife. Um, <laughs> and having that relationship has been so instrumental to me making decisions, pushing things forward. You know, the first sales call that scared me, um, you know, she said, practice on me. And I called her up. She's like, don't tell me when you're calling. I called her up in the middle of the week and I said, hi, Kristen, I wanted to know. And I practiced my sales skills on her. And so, you know, connecting with a bunch of people is great. And also sometimes you just need that one person who helps cheer you on and who sees that same vision that you see. Yeah. And I just want to, um, add to what Maya was saying, uh, you know, at the beginning, um, I am still part of the organization ACD, which is the Association for Community Design. And I just posted a link in the chat box um, about our conference that's coming up um, June 28th and 29th in Greenwood, Mississippi. Um, and if you can only make it for one day, a lot of the stuff happens on the 29th, which is a Saturday. So uh, most folks should be able to make it. Um, and, and that's an organization that's been around since the 70s as a network of community design centers, uh, that, which are, you know, small, often nonprofit, sometimes independent, sometimes tied to universities, um, essentially nonprofit design firms that are doing a host of different work and providing a host of different services to um, really add value um, to the communities that they live and work in. And so it's just a, a conference of all the people across the country who are doing that work coming together to share their strategies, their stories, their tactics, 
um, and everything they've learned. Um, so if you're really interested in this really community-based or community-engaged approach to design work, I'd, I'd really highly recommend in coming to the ACB conference. It's a place where I think you'll really find like you'll you'll find your people. Yeah, and, and I would second accountability partners, Maya. I think that they're super powerful. Um, mastermind groups, you know, find a mastermind group that's all focused on the same thing and meet on a regular basis and, and hold one another accountable. And I encourage Tina, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but I encourage Tina to create that Slack group right now and post the link right here and we'll promote it on this video and uh, it'll be here for eternity. And uh, it's not that hard to do. If you're on Slack, start a group, post a link in that, in that chat box right there and we'll, uh, we'll let people know about it. I, would, I, I would also just add in terms, of, in terms of Slack, um, I'm actually already a part of a couple different Slack groups out there. Um, all have their own specific flavor, but focused on this type of work. So I would also encourage you um, to just search, just Google online or search through Slack to find channels um, where people are talking about this kind of stuff. Because there are definitely communities out there of people trying to do this already. Yeah, and I'm sure there's Facebook groups and, and Slack groups and all kinds of things. But if there are fans of proactive practices and they want to create a Slack group for proactive Slack, you let them do it. it that'll, uh, could, yeah. could be powerful. You be proactive by creating your Slack group today. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are a bunch of people saying they're in there. You know, you can create a Slack group. You have three people who said they're in, they're in. So I have a question for you. So you started this five years ago. You've said multiple times in both webinars that this took much longer than you ever imagined it would take. Um, what are some of the surprises or lessons that you learned that, that when you started this, you thought you were going to head in this direction and you ended up in a completely different place? Are there any specific things that you sort of learned uh, along the way of these five years? Yeah, well, so I'll, I'll share a quick story. Um, that has been in the back of my mind ever ever since we decided to do this capstone webinar series. So when we started this project, we reached out to a couple of mentors. Um, many of them became part of our advisory group who were a group of loose informal advisors who were giving us advice on the project. Um, and one of our mentors, um, John Carey, um, he he said something about he's like he said something about the concept of learned helplessness, which is um, learned helplessness is, it's a it's a mindset that people develop. Um, you know, sometimes if you're in an environment where you don't have a lot of empowerment or agency, you can develop it. Um, but it's it's a mindset that you develop where you feel like you can't actually change anything, right? It's like it's you know, learned helplessness is the reason why people don't organize to change political conditions. Learned helplessness is it's it's the mindset piece of why change doesn't or one of the mindset pieces of why change doesn't happen. And we were like, yeah, 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 okay, thanks. Um, but anyways, tell us about business models, right? And, <laughs> and you know, five years later, and, you know, my pathway has, has taken me to, you know, at first um, running a design consultancy and then deciding to go fully all in on, on my um, empowerment coaching work. I, I just feel like I've seen it in action over and over and over again. And so, you know, the, the younger, more naive me that was like, sure, yeah, whatever. Cool mindset, whatevs, um, is, is I, I, he was right. And I think that there's a moment, um, and actually you probably have that moment, you've probably had that moment multiple times in your career where there's an opportunity to take a risk and you stay on, on this side of the line. I know I've been in that 
space a couple of times and the times that I have stepped over the line, it's made all the difference. But it means acting when you don't know how it's all going to work out. It usually means exposing your ideas, your goals, your interests to rejection, vulnerability, right? Being visible in some way, shape or form, putting something on the line. And I... I think that um, that mindset piece is so much more fundamentally important. And you know, learning the way that you unlearn learned helplessness if you struggle with it is by taking actions that scare you. Um, so, if I had one takeaway, right, thinking back to then and and, and you know, reflecting on now. Um, it's, it's really that, which is why I, you know, I commend people like Vanessa, who has been thinking about this work for a long time and finally stepped out to start her own practice, right? Or people who, people who take a risk, that first risk, whatever it is for you, is so, so important. And cultivating that, that aspect of yourself is so, so important. Glad. Any, any surprises or lessons? Yeah. Um, I think that early on, I really thought that there were a concrete set of strategies that would enable anyone to do this. And I think early on, Maya and our other research partner, Nick, um, and, and myself talked about this idea of even creating like a deck of cards of like, we can literally codify every strategy that's used and you can just pick and mix and match and create any, you know, amazing business model you want. Um, and I think what we found there are in fact, a lot of core strategies, some specific to a project or a place or a firm and some specific to um, a certain amount of funding that's available or anything else. There, there's tons of strategies, both common across firms and specific to individual projects. Um, I think that what I learned was that it's actually the people that are much more important than the strategies that you're using or the business model you create. Uh, because when I tried to take a step back and see like, okay, what is common across all of the firms we've looked at? How have they done this? What are the, what are the clear strategies that everyone's using? There, there weren't any, they were all different. And when I tried to think about it a little bit more, I realized the one commonality was that every single firm or organization had a few people, whether that's one, two, three, or in some cases, a, a small group of people who were leading this, who were saying, I'm dedicated to doing this. This is my passion. This is what I want to do. This is what I'm going to pursue. And they were problem solvers. When anything came up, they figured out a way to get around it or how to go through it or how to build on it and, and leverage it. So I think that to me, the, the big kind of insight I came away with from all of this research after you know five years was it's about people. It's about finding the people you want to work with and making commitments amongst yourselves to, to be dedicated to doing whatever you're going to do, regardless of what. Uh, can I add one more, Mark? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So the other thing that I learned the hard way, um, and I think this actually is not unique to public interest business, I think it's just business, is that a business is a complex ecosystem and it will evolve slowly in pieces over time. Um, so I think sometimes there's this desire to build the whole thing at once and then you can get really frustrated when you're not where you want it to be. So for me, for example, I had this, this moment, I call it assistant apocalypse uh, 2018, when my assistant ghosted me, um, every, you know, I was in the middle of a bunch of high profile partnerships, everything kind of felt like it fell apart. And it was really clear that I needed more business systems. And I, I mean, that 
kind of stuff is really boring to me. So I really didn't, you know, I, and it, it made me realize that, you know, there's, you can't move everything forward at the same time, right? You can't have this perfect shiny thing that works in all the ways that you want it to work immediately. And, you know, I'm impatient for change. I like things to happen tomorrow. And part of what I've had to learn is that it's okay to go after the long game and to recognize that you will go through seasons where you learn one skill or you build one capacity or your business moves from stage A to stage B in this realm. And it's okay for not everything to always move forward at the same time. And in the, the long game is much more important than whether everything's perfectly optimized in every moment. How, how important is it to plan it all out? Should we have a plan of where we want to go and what that looks like and then sort of work our way backwards to what's the next step today to get to where we want to go? Is there, is there a necessity for that long-term plan? Do you want any thoughts on this? Yeah, that's a tough question to answer. Um, I think that it's really always important to be kind of looking to the future and, and knowing where you're headed. Um, but I guess the, the, the more recent kind of thing I've been thinking about a lot in response to this type of question is that like to really be present and to um, focus on what's right in front of you and do it really well. Um, and just kind of, I know this sounds like a hippie, crunchy granola answer, but just kind of like have faith that when you take that next step, the ground will appear out from under you. Um, and that as long as you're doing your work really well and you're following your passions and um, pursuing the type of projects you really want to be working on, that that will help create more opportunities for you. Yeah, I would, I'm not a, I think, I think sometimes on the learned helplessness front, one of the hiding strategies, um, Tara Moore, who's a, a women's coach who I really love, calls them hiding strategies, like ways we protect ourselves from being exposed is planning and over planning. So I think sometimes what we see is people try to get all the information and figure out exactly how to do this the right way as a, as a delay tactic. So I the way I tend to operate is I like to have a really high level North star that I'm working towards, um, an intention. Um, and sometimes that intention is, is vague and sometimes it's really specific. It's like an image that I can see in my head. And then I try to have seasons of growth where I focus on a specific thing and really think about how am I growing the business, but how am I also growing my own skills and my capacity and in the future, hopefully the skills and capacity of the people who work with me. And, you know, it's okay to just have one thing in front of you or a few things in front of you at a time. It's okay to have these seasons. Yeah. I, one of the things that we teach at Entree Architect is to, is to develop your mission and your, and your vision. And, and we do that through a vision narrative, sort of write what you imagine your life would look like five years from now. If everything was perfect, there are no barriers or no obstacles. What would that world look like? And then work your way back to creating a mission and a vision statement. And the reason I think that's really important is it sort of becomes your North star, Maya, that, that it, it's the thing that when that shiny object is presented to you, you can go back to your mission and your vision and say, does that fit within my mission and vision? And if it doesn't, then you have a choice. You can either say, okay, it doesn't and reject it and say no, even if it's a great opportunity and you can continue on in the direction that you want to go and get to that final destination. Or you can specifically and intentionally choose to take a new path with, with the knowledge that you're taking a new path. Um, without those two things of, of vision and mission, 
I think very often we end up walking around in circles. You know, you sort of keep following that next step, but that next step just brings you back to where you started. You never get to where you want to go. Um, and so I think it's really important to have, have some sort of definition of where you want to go and how you're ultimately going to get there, even if it's not fully developed, fully formed. Um, just in the, in the chat box, um, Tina did create that Slack group. So everybody who's listening, and it's a big, long link, so I can't promote it on the, on the audio, uh, but it's there. Um, and so anybody who wants to be part of that Slack group, click that link, join that Slack group. And I encourage you to not just join that and have a bunch of conversations. Don't just talk about this. Make that Slack group something that you come together and you create a, a goal and you go do something. Don't just talk about doing something. Because I think a lot of times we have a, this idea that we, we want to do something and then we'll talk about it for the next five years. Create a, a, you know, make, it, make that your accountability group. Make that your mastermind group and hold each other accountable for the things that you want to do and, and want to accomplish. Um, Maya and Gilad, are there, are there any other case studies? You, you've created an entire uh, portfolio of case studies. And if anybody wants to go see those, if they haven't read the case studies and reviewed them, proactive, uh, proactivepractices.org, they're all there for you to look at and read and learn everything that you want to learn about them. Are there any case studies that you've learned since then or knew that they were there, you just hadn't gotten to them? Are there, are there uh, specific case studies that you'd like to explore going forward? Uh, yeah, too many to list <laughs> off right now. Um, Maya and I for a long time had a spreadsheet going of all the firms we'd like to do case studies on in the future. And I think we kind of gave up on that when we got to about 150. <laughs> um, so let's just say there's, there's many out there that I would really love to do case studies on and learn more about and just, um, yeah, find out ways to share some of the things that they've developed. Um, you know, just a couple that come to the top of my mind. Um, the Center for Urban Pedagogy is an amazing organization based in New York City um, that does a wide variety of work. And I would, I would just love to learn more about how they do what they do. Um, there's a really cool um, design nonprofit in um, Cincinnati called uh, Design Impact. Um, that's really, really interesting. They do lots of work out there, um, really focused on socioeconomic um, development. Um, and um, there's uh, a, a great firm out in, um, in California called uh, Kunkui Design Initiative um, that does a lot with public spaces. So those are just kind of three that come to the top of my mind, but um, we would love to continue producing case studies. Um, we're just um, you know, in, in the slow process of trying to find the way to fund that, you know, because proactive practices was really a labor of love and so we are trying to figure out how we can continue that work. Um, but I just want to say that if you're interested and if you want to even get involved and help produce future case studies, please let us know. We're always looking for um, interested, passionate, talented people who want to be a part of this. Um, so I'll, I'll put the email again in the chat box, but it's just hello at proactivepractices.org. That goes to us. Um, and we'll definitely reach out to you if you, if you email us and find ways that we could even work together in the future. Yeah. So that's hello at proactivepractices.org. So if you're interested in being uh, part of this mission and want to start, start uh, helping with some of these case studies, you can uh, email Gilad at hello at proactivepractices.org. Um, what's next 
before proactive practices. So you've, you've gone through this whole process of creating these case studies. You've developed your, your research, you're presenting it. You presented a great, these great series of webinars. And I, again, I encourage you to go back to those first two super important and powerful. What's next for proactive practices? Is this the end or is this, is this the beginning of the next step? So for me, this is the end. For me, this is the end. Um, it was it was so important for me to get this work out there in the world. Um, it started for me as an independent study at design school. Um, I really, really wanted to publish it and get it out. And that felt like the important thing to, to do in order to honor the time of the people who we interviewed. Um, you know, I do want to say it was a very much a labor of love, but we also got financial support from the National Endowment for the Arts, which was incredible. Also brought credibility and legitimacy to this project. Um, and Penn Design ended up being um, the, the Penn Praxis uh, was the institution that we went through. So I do want to say, like, and, and we got support, guidance, advice, um, a lot from them. So I want to say thanks to, to those. For me, when I looked forward at what it meant to keep following this work, I, I realized one of the things that I think was a, a learning from the case studies, which is at the end of the day, time and resources, resources of time and attention and focus are really limited. And so I've actually gone from, you know, five years ago, I was running a, um, a speaker series for local creatives and entrepreneurs. I was running a, um, I was trying to help found a co-working space, which, you know, Kayla, I can talk to Kayla if you want to know how it actually worked out for someone who actually pulled it off. Um, I was, I was running um, my, my design consultancy. I was running build yourself workshop. I was running actually a kosher pop-up dinner club with an ex-partner. Like it was like everything and anything. And over the last five years, I've actually slowly you know, cut down to just focus on build yourself because I really, you know, I've got this North Star vision of the kind of impact that I want to make. And, you know, I wanted to do one thing and really make a much, much bigger impact. So for me, proactive practices, my involvement with proactive practices, that's why I wanted to have this capstone to kind of close it off. But what I will say will continue is that you know, there's an approach to looking deeply under the hood of a practice, which is, it's pretty accessible. Um, you know, I, I have a, a habit where I invite out another business owner who I admire for an online coffee date every month. And um, one of the, and I guess this is a piece of advice, but really, I really try to show transparently what's under the hood of my business model, talk about, you know, what are the different programs or things that I offer? What's the revenue? What's the profit? Really just sharing what's going on and then asking them questions about those same things. And it doesn't work with everybody, right? Not everybody's interested in sharing transparently, but it's been this way for me that I can get insight ideas. I mean, you know, Mark is one of my, one of my business wingmen, right? Like we talk every couple of months about yeah. our business models. So I think I took that approach with me and I'm so, I'm also so happy that the result of that approach it through the case studies is out there for other people to take that with them. If, if people wanted to get involved in what you're doing next, how do they do that? Yeah. So I, I, through Build Yourself, I run um, coaching and training programs for women in design. I work with a lot of mission-driven women. So if you're interested in connecting with me, you can email me at MIA at buildyourselfworkshop.com. Um, if you're interested in working with me or coaching with me, you can do that. And if you want to get on my email list, you can text Build Yourself to 444-999. And I talk about issues of mission alignment. I talk about taking risks. I talk about, you know, 
facing fear of visibility. So I would love to connect with you through Build Yourself. Before I ask you loud about the future of proactive practices, can you just post that that link to your newsletter in the chat box? Yeah. Galad, so so what about you? What's what's the next step for proactive practices if if there is one? Yeah, um, so I just really like nerd out on this kind of stuff. <laughs> I, I love finding out about business models and organizational structures and the ways that people, you know, structure um, you know practices that are that are working in the public interest. Um, so let's just say I, I would love to keep producing case studies. Um, what I think both Maya and I learned uh, is that it takes a lot longer than we ever anticipated to go from finding a firm and interviewing them to producing a finished, you know, polished case study. Um, so like I said, we're, I'm actively seeking, um, you know, financial support. So if there's any funders here right now who are interested, you know, please reach out to me. Um, but yeah, that's looking into different grant opportunities. I've been exploring ways to weave this into teaching, um, trying to actually lead a course at Tulane University in the fall, keeping my fingers crossed, hopefully that works, and thinking about ways that working with students um, and leading uh, classes could uh, be productive in sort of producing case studies. Um, so yeah, if, if anyone here is interested, like I said, please email me. Um, I'd, I'd love to talk more. Um, but also trying to find ways that this can tie into my role um, leading research with the Association for Community Design. We're actively trying to produce more bodies of work that help inform people in the field. Um, and so case studies on projects like this is definitely something we're looking into. Um, I think ACD right now, um, in terms of research, is a bit more focused on a specific area of this, um, which is actually what a lot of proactive practices has led me to, which is looking at um, more systemic injustices and um, specifically um, racial injustice and how design firms and design organizations are trying to work around those issues and address those. Um, so right now I'm uh, working on a project where we're looking at business models, organizational structures, design process, all the kind of the full range of stuff for a host of different firms around the country we're not just doing public interest work, but really doing community engaged design practice uh, projects that are focused on addressing issues of systemic injustice and specifically issues of racism. Um, so I, I think that some of this research has just led me down further, you know, research holes, finding out more about specifics that I'm really interested in. Um, and again, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, please come to the ACD conference because there will be lots of lots of content there. Yep. And you posted a, uh, a link to that in the chat box. So if anybody wants to register for that, um, and it, I guess the best way to connect with you, uh, Gilad, for anything is that hello at proactivepractices.org. Would that be a good way to remember? Maybe the hello at proactive, you know, if you're really interested in proactive and you want to talk about the case studies or get involved, great. If you want to talk about anything else, um, you can just use my normal email. I'll post it here too. It's just my name. Uh, Gilad Marone at gmail.com. All right. Uh, Mark, yes, before go ahead, we Mark. go, yep. I just also thought it'd be helpful for folks to hear a little bit about you, where you are, and how how they can get connected with you and what how you can help them. Sure. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. EntreeArchitect.com is our platform. It's a platform for small firms to build better businesses. And so we have a community and resources and membership. And um, if you want to 
create that model that I talked about earlier, where you build the thriving, profitable business first, and then you take that money and you fund your nonprofit, we can help you build that first phase. So entrearchitect.com will give you everything that you need to know about me and, and what we're doing over there. And so, and, and we're, you know, I'm super passionate. I think the world can change through architecture, through individual architects, building stronger, thriving businesses. So it's, uh, it's, it's not about the money. It's about what, what the money can bring us. And so that's why we're building Entree Architect. Thank you for that. So is there anything that either of you want to sort of wrap up before we uh, close things out here? Um, just thank you to everyone who's been to these webinars and who's read our case studies and thank you to you mark for for moderating this panel and you know just want to once again encourage anyone who's interested to to reach out to us we'd love to hear more from you yeah this has been an incredible journey i have doing this research i think was my first step off of the traditional pathway um, and I, I just am really thankful for what I've learned, who I've connected with. And um, every time we get a, an email, someone is willing to write back and say, hey, this was interesting to me, or how can I do more? It's been really nice to hear other people's stories and how, how some of what we've put out there has influenced your pathway. So thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to watch both of you grow into your, into your passions I, I'm excited to see where proactive practices continues. I think this is just the beginning, first chapter of where it goes. I think maybe that Slack group might become the army that you need to build that, build that, uh, uh, to, to build that next step and uh, build yourself is, uh, is super important. And so my, I'm, I'm, uh, I've seen where you started and where you are. And so I'm excited to, to watch where you're going. So uh, thank you both for doing what you do. Um, and thank you, everybody who attended today. I think this is a super uh, interesting and important webinar. And uh, thanks for contributing and being part of it. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again. Have a good day. So that was episode 278 of the Entree Architect podcast. You can learn more about Maya Sharfi and her workshop at buildyourselfworkshop.com. And you can follow along as Gilad takes proactive practices to the next, to the next level, to the next generation, to the, to the evolution of proactive practices and what that becomes. If you want to get involved, go check out proactive practices at proactivepractices.org. And if you want to join the Entree Architect membership, go check it out at entrearchitect.com slash join. It is monthly training, live monthly training at a webinar with Q&A every month. So we bring in an expert every month to teach us something about business, life, or leadership uh, as a small firm architect. It's a great resource. You know, you can you, you subscribe, and then every month you have a new live training. You'll learn something every month. Step it up one month at a time. Build a better business so you can be a better architect. Then you have access to the entire archive of training plus tons of resources and, and checklists and forms and access to our, uh, our full member forum on Slack. So check that out at entrearchitect.com slash join. Every small firm architect should be a member of Entree Architect. If you are an entrepreneur architect and you run or own your own small firm, then you are an Entree Architect. And I encourage you to build a better business so you can be a better architect Love, learn, share. Thanks for listening. Have a great week.
I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast. It's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. (laughs) So for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.